Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and my name is Ian Rowe. I am a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, uh, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, as for those of you who have been following us, you know that we very excitedly uh, try to uplift Black excellence, stories of individuals that you may not uh, know but are doing extraordinary things on a day-to-day -day basis. And sometimes with the dominant narrative, particularly these days around race, you might get the impression that you know Black people are cowering in fear of the police or living in, in victimhood as it relates to the, the specter of, of white supremacy and oppression. And yet there's some amazing people doing everything every day to prove that black people, like people all across the world, have the capacity to be agents of their own uplift. And today we're very, very excited to have with us Dr. Glenn Lowry, someone who for decades has been a champion of the idea of black self-determination, even in the face of structural barriers. Dr. Lowry is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences and a professor in the Department of Economics at Brown University. We couldn't be more proud to have Dr. Glenn Lowry join us today. Hello, thank Glenn. You. Hey, Ian, thank you. Thank you, thank you. So good to have you. So good to have you. You know, you you you're you have been an incredible voice uh, for such a long period of time, but especially now, as there's a lot of discussion around what's the right path forward for Black Americans, especially in light of the discussions we're having. But before we get to present day, you know, so often, you know, when people encounter you know, Glenn Lowry, oh my gosh, he's that amazing professor at Brown. He's been a writer, he's done this. But most people don't know who you were when you were 14 or 15 years old and how you, your path to your own form of prosperity. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and what were the incidences in your life that led you to believe that you could be an agent of your own uplift? Okay, well, I won't take a long time. I could go on forever about this. I was born in 1948. Okay, that was 72 years ago. In Chicago, the South Side, to a working class family, my mother and father. My mother was a secretary. My father uh, worked at the Internal Revenue Service. He worked his way up to a pretty high level of managerial authority in the IRS by the time he retired. Um, but uh, relatively modest background. My parents were divorced when I was young. My sister and I grew up with my mother um, in my aunt's house. Uh, my aunt was a businesswoman, her husband a businessman. They had done reasonably well for black folk on the south side of Chicago in the 1940s and 50s. So they bought a house in what had been an all white neighborhood with a nice lawn in a backyard, decent school. And uh, they took us in, my mother, my sister and I, and that's where I, I grew up. Public schools in Chicago. I got a pretty good education. Um, I also ran the streets. I had a girlfriend. She got pregnant. I was a father at the age of 18 and at the age of 19 and at the age of 20. 
and I dropped out of college. And long story short, I found my way to the Southeast Junior College, a community college that met in the wing of a vocational high school. The <laughs> junior college met in the wing of a big vocational <laughs> high school wow. on the Southeast side of Chicago. And I got discovered there by a math teacher. I was taking calculus. I was always good at math. I mean, I, you know, I just was always, I loved it. I just was always good at algebra and trigonometry and solid geometry. That was just me. And this guy, uh, Mr. Andros, a, a Greek man, a Greek American, retired uh, from an engineering company, teaching in the community college, saw that I could do calculus really, really well. And he was an alumnus of Northwestern University, and he recommended me. This the year was 1969. He recommended me to be one of the black students that they were trying to recruit from Chicago, Northwestern, because this was 1969, 1970. They wanted to try to find some black kids to bring in. He recommended me and I got a full scholarship to Northwestern. And when I got there, I discovered my gifts, my intellectual gifts that, you know, have carried me through uh, through life. But I came off the south side of Chicago, a, a working class family, uh, not poor certainly not rich, uh, cheek by jowl with inner city urban problems of all the kinds that you can imagine. I knew my way around the housing projects. I could, you know, ma manage in the, you know, situations that would come up if you're coming up on the South side of Chicago. But I was always a bookish kid. And um, I had this particular talent for the quantitative things. Um, and and that's, that's kind of my origin story. Um, my father inspired me, I'll say this, even though he and my mom divorced before I was five years old. Um, he's a very, very disciplined man. He would say, I'm a C student, you're an A student, you gotta make something of yourself. Because he was a C student who put his nose to the grindstone, worked his way through law school at night, uh, you know, worked his way up the managerial ranks, ended up in the senior executive service of the US government uh, administrative employees and retired as the director of the Kansas City Service Center of the Internal Revenue Service, processing millions of tax returns from all over the country, supervising 5,000 employees. This is my dad. And I just did not want him to think that I had blown it. I mean, he, I had all these advantages that he didn't have. I mean, it wasn't very much, but it was a lot more than he had. He lost his mom. He never knew his father. He lost his mother when he, uh, he was 12 years old, she died. He had a paper route paying his own bills and managing, you know, he was Lieutenant Colonel. This is my father, Everett Lowry, the late Everett Lowry. He was a Lieutenant Colonel in the ROTC of the high school class that he graduated in, um, in Inglewood High School in Chicago. And I just wanted to be able to look him in the face and not feel ashamed of having squandered my talent. So wow. that was a major factor, a major factor in pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. But I had some breaks along the way, you know, and um, ended up at MIT and so forth. Wow. So when you were growing up, I mean, enshrined into law were actually true opposition, true barriers based on your race. What did that, what, what would that, how did that manifest itself for you? Because you went through a period where there, those laws changed over time, but as you were growing up, how did that show up in your life? Because ultimately I want to talk about in comparison to today when black kids are growing up and there's that difference and yet there's there's something still lingering from that time. So just talk a little bit, a little bit about that. 
Well, it, it, it's funny because I didn't know that I was oppressed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the world was a black world. My world coming up as a kid was a largely black world. The high school I went to was kind of integrated. It was like 50-50 when I first went in. But by the time I graduated, it was like 90-10 because most of the whites were starting to move away. But it was the John Marshall Harlan High School on the south side of Chicago. Um, you know, glad to be able to. You, do you realize that my 55th anniversary of my graduating in 1965 uh, <laughs> came and went this year? But in any case, um, it was an integrated high school, but it was a black world. And, um, you know, the cops would roust you. I mean, if you know, when I got a driver's license, I get pulled over and, you know, for nothing, you know, for BS and whatnot. Um, uh, you know, I heard stories about how the department stores downtown used to not allow you, the, the black shoppers to go in there and all of this. It was very segregated. Chicago in the 1950s and 60s when I was growing up, geographically, you had your black neighborhoods and your white neighbors. One day I rode my bicycle, a 12-year-old kid. I was just riding my bike and I just was riding. You know, I wasn't paying any attention. The next thing I knew, I was in this Polish-American neighborhood. And the guys with the baseball bats chasing me, wow. you know, they, they did not appreciate uh, N-I-G-G-E-R coming over into their, to their territory. And it was, I only was two miles from home. I was only two miles from home, okay? And it was already a no-go zone. They had the football game every... Uh, yeah, the public schools, which were largely black, not entirely so, but the best football teams were often from black high schools and the Catholic schools. So there was a Catholic school league because there was many Catholics in Chicago and they tended to be white mostly. And then uh, they had their separate championships and then they'd have like the Super Bowl of Chicago high school football. And there was always a race riot after the game. <laughs> Literally, you came there knowing that if your team won, you were going to have to run. And if your team lost, you were going to have to fight. <laughs> I mean, I exaggerate only just a little bit. I mean, it was a different world. Uh, right. It was a different world. But, but Northwestern University opened the whole world to me. When I got there in 1970 and I started studying German, I was studying the German language. I started studying philosophy and uh, economics and I was a math major and, and, and my professors, um, they were all, you know, accessible. And the university was this like, uh, you know, new world. I mean, I can remember sitting in the library. I was a dad. I had a full-time job at night and I was going to school full-time during the day at Northwestern University. I know, I don't know how I did that. <laughs> I don't know how I did that in retrospect. But I can remember getting off my job at seven o'clock in the morning because I worked the third shift and getting on the train and going up to Evanston, Illinois, would take about 45 minutes to get up there and sitting in the library. They had the circular tower library by the Lake Michigan in a library, Carol, with a book, with a book. And it was quiet and there was nothing to keep me from the book. And, and the whole the book is the world. I mean, anybody listening out here? Books are the world. They open up the entire world. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you got. Nobody can keep you out if you pull open that book. And that's how I, I fell in love with the book. Man. And I, I gotta just, we just have to stop for a moment and recognize what you just said. You were a husband, a father, you had a full-time job, and you were going full-time to one of America's leading universities and unquestionably one of the hardest majors, mathematics and you were executed. You know, so as you, as you just said, Glenn, you know, for those that are listening, 
human possibility is almost limitless, you know, and, and how you accomplish that, who knows, but you did it. And that, that is really, how many children did you have at that time? I had three children at that time, two with my wife and one outside of the marriage. And, you know, I was juggling and I was managing. It was <laughs> it's a long story. Okay. That's a long story. Right. I had, I was a father. I was a husband. Uh, we lived in a little apartment with one of these uh, like subsidies from the federal government to underwrite, you know, a low cost housing for people uh, uh, in uh, Rogers Park, uh, just uh, north uh, side of Chicago. And, um, you know, it was 18 hour days and uh, it was not a whole lot of time with my kids or my wife for that matter, but it felt good. I mean, I must say in retrospect, I have no idea how I did it. I thank God for my gifts. Because if I, if I hadn't had the, you know, intellectual ability, mathematics, philosophy, German, economics, uh, you know, you got to study, man. I mean, these papers are hard to write. I mean, these equations do not solve themselves, you know. It took a lot of effort. Bless my wife at that time. We divorced later on. Charlene, she should be remembered, though, because she, she, she hung in there with me through thick and thin. I could not have done it. Without her, um, my children are over fifty now. The ones who were who are, I have two children from the a later marriage in life who were in their thirties, but I have three children who are over fifty now, and they're all, by the way, one of them is a journalist who uh, runs the equity desk at a big public radio station. One of them is a lawyer that works for a DC uh, lobbying firm on the other side of the aisle from the American Enterprise Institute. <laughs> <laughs> And one of them is a uh, is a clinical psychologist, has a big practice, and is uh, even with COVID, is still raking in the bucks and uh, seeing her patients by uh, Zoom uh, interview and whatnot like that. I mean, all my children, uh, thank God, are are uh, prospering and and uh, making their own marks in the world. I mean, that's it's an amazing thing. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing. It's just incredible. I mean, you just you just said a few things that are uh, uh, worthy of repeating, but. You just said that you didn't know that you were oppressed at a time in which there were laws that were on the books that were designed to block you simply because of your skin color. So let's fast forward to today where those kinds of laws are no longer on the books. And yet there is a segment of the black community that is determined to convince other black people that we are being oppressed. So what has changed that has created this kind of narrative? A lot has changed. Uh, I'm not the man to chronicle it. You need a cultural historian or somebody here. A lot has changed. Uh, Postmodernism, you know, critical race theory, uh, the Democratic Party. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That was a partisan comment. I take it back. <laughs> Welfare, uh, I, I don't, you know. Uh, here's what I can tell you. Uncle Mooney, who was my uncle, my mother's sister's husband, he was the patriarch and head of the household where I was raised. Cause as I said, my auntie took us in, my mother and her two kids into a nice neighborhood where the schools were halfway decent. He's a barber and a hustler. I mean, you know, mostly legit. Uh, but you know, he just did what he had to do to make money. He was a very, very hardworking guy. And he said the following. He said, I don't give a darn about immigration. I'm not waiting for white folk to save me. I tell you what, call me when they start integrating the money. 
<laughs> now, he was not a Muslim uh, in the uh, following uh, Elijah Muhammad, but Elijah Muhammad was a large presence in Chicago in the 1950s and the 1960s, culturally amongst black people. And he influenced uh, our household. Uncle Mooney had, you are what you eat. I can still remember it to this day. There was this little book that the Muslims put out, you are what you eat. And all it said was, be healthy. It just said, watch what you eat. Don't eat the pork because they, you know, they don't want you to eat pork. But don't eat so much sugar, man. Don't eat so much salt, man. Eat a whole lot of vegetables. You are what you eat. Where you could Now, who's going to tell you what to eat? Nobody is coming to save you from the fried chicken, okay? You got to decide not to eat it. If you want to live to be 80 years old, you don't need to be eating all that fried chicken. You are what you eat. Well, that's just, I mean, it's a small thing, okay? But it's, it's, sim it's, it's symbolic and emblematic of this idea that, we're not waiting for the white people to get cut us some slack. Who knows what they're going to do? We're going to build a business. We're going to take care of our home. We're going to raise our kids. We're going to work our tails off. That was Uncle Mooney. That was Auntie Lois. Uh, that was Uncle Adler. That, that was, uh, and, and I mean, what was the alternative? The alternative was just to languish. That's right. So, so I mean, I'm, I don't want to pat myself on the back. I just did what I did. But all the people around me, were uh, almost all of them, not all of them, almost all of them were seizing the opportunities that were opening up. And by the way, the 1960s was a boom decade. I mean, there were jobs everywhere. Um, I mean, I, when I dropped out of college and, and got the job I had to get because my girlfriend was pregnant and there was the baby and, you know, you, you tended to marry, at least in the world that I grew up in, you tended to marry the girl that you got pregnant, you know? Um, I got a job the next day uh, at a printing plant that doesn't exist anymore because it's been competed out of business and techn technology automated out of business. But there were probably 10,000 people working at the Lakeside Press. This is R.R. Donnelly and Sons. They had a whole campus of printing plants all over this, the uh, coast of, of Lake Michigan on the near south side of Chicago. And they, they, they're all condominiums now. You know, <laughs> and high-end and high-tech high office buildings and stuff like that, all these printing plant buildings. But I got a job there making six hundred dollars a month in 1967. That that was that was a pretty good wage. I could rent an apartment, I could buy myself a car, I could whatever. So, you know, it helped. Right. And it it helped that I could get a job uh, with a dropout from college making, you know, a, a middle class, almost a middle class wage when I was 20 years old. So why do you think it's so enticing? when people today are hearing the message that we do have to wait for the white man, we do have to, you know, it's reparations. It's, you know, these people have to renounce their privilege first. Like why, why is it that that's so appealing versus what, what it feels like the pride that you had in determining your own outcomes? Why is it such a clash? Again, I, I feel unqualified to really answer the question. I mean, it is, what you say it is, uh, the the tenor uh, has has shifted. I mean, in a way, I want to say almost that we black folk, many of us, have lost our way. You could point to the leadership. You you could you could talk about the the tenor of the times. You could talk about white liberals who are responsive to some kind of claims and not others. Uh, I think Shelby Steele, the writer, actually has his finger on on some important stuff here. I mean, he's been saying the same thing for. 30 years, but that's okay, because I, I actually think he's got it right. Uh, we African Americans do have something to prove. I mean, this is something I don't think people understand. Uh, slavery and Jim Crow exclusion damaged us. Okay, the, the quality of schools were poor. 
The nature of uh, opportunity was unequal. Uh, the damaging effects of oppression all the way back to the days of slavery. I mean, for example, the freedmen at, in 1865 were largely illiterate. It was a largely illiterate population. In fact, this is one of the untold stories of the history of the United States, which is that Black people coming out of slavery taught ourselves how to read so that by the time you get to 1900, 1910, the literacy rate amongst the African-American population is comparable to what you would have seen in a European population, wow. even though uh, we have came from a situation of almost nobody knowing how to read. This is Booker T. Washington kind of stuff here. We had to make ourselves, you know, competent, effective, productive, disciplined, moral. This is Booker T. Washington, but it was true. Slavery was a Holocaust. It really damaged people. We had to make ourselves. Um, and uh, in a way, although we're a long way past slavery, the uh, marginality and subjugation and discrimination and exclusions of African-Americans wrought its effects. Schools were not equal. We didn't have that many people in the professions by the time you get to the civil rights movement. So we, we, we had work to do. It wasn't exactly fair that we had been dealt this hand by history because of oppression, but it was inescapable that we had this work to do. And I think the generation of uh, uh, effective African-Americans coming out after the Second World, World War realized this in a way that uh, more recent generations do not. They, 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 they don't realize that nobody can do that work for you. You want to be equal, you have to make yourself equal. He can't declare you to be equal. Oh, those are just words. Those are just words. You must attain mastery over something. I don't care what it is. It could be a very simple job. It does not have to be rocket science, okay? You must be competent. You must be disciplined. No one can do that. No one can get you out of bed in the morning. No, no, no one can raise your children for you. These are things we have to do. And I, I think this uh, politics of entitlement, this kind of uh, complaint politics, I'm a victim, you have to, this is Shelby, you have to make me whole, you have to cop, you know, you have to uh, prop me up. I mean, it does two things. It allows white people to feel good about themselves because they become the show. They, they become the ones who are moral people by acceding to our demands and whatnot. And it spares us the burden of having to confront the possibility of failure as we face the existentially unavoidable task of making ourselves fit, equal, productive, competent, masterful, effective uh, human beings. That has to be done. No one can do it for us. I think we used to know that. I don't think we do. Um, too many of us, too many of the spokespeople, the uh, what John McWhorter calls the people with three names, I could name them, but, you know, <laughs> but I'm not going to, I'm not going to. But, but there's all this, there's all this um, white supremacy, white racism, whatnot. Yeah, I know. I know white supremacy. I know white racism. But it doesn't stop you from teaching your kids how to read. It doesn't stop you from starting a business. It doesn't stop you from putting your nose to the grindstone. Okay, so you had to work two jobs and the white person had to work one. Okay. Well, my grandmama told me that a long time ago. You're going to have to work two jobs. Okay. Are you, are you uh, in the game to win the game? Or are you waiting for somebody to bring you something? Mm. That this is me. This is just my opinion. But well, um, yeah, that was. I'm, I'm ready to go out and run four miles, and I don't even run. So you, <laughs> you got me right. But uh, just eat so, your vegetables. Eat your vegetables. So we have a section of our podcast, Glenn, that we call Speed Round, where we give you 
two, two examples, and we ask you to pick one and sort of explain why. And it's fun and easy. So we'll, we'll start with an easy one. Okay. Malcolm or Martin? Uh, Martin. Okay, so this is actually important. I mean, I get, I get Malcolm. Uh, like I said, the uh, Elijah Muhammad was a very powerful figure in the world that I grew up in as a kid. You know, the defiance, the anger, the, the militants, militancy. I get Malcolm, but we are 10% of the population here, maybe 12%. It's a democracy. I mean, in fact, it's the greatest democracy in the history of the world. It's the richest country on the planet. Everybody wants, we're the light at the, America, the light at the end of the tunnel for people all over the globe. Tens and tens of millions have come. They're not all white. Most of them are not white. So Martin bought into the idea that America was a good, great, and ultimately virtuous nation and called it to higher ground. That was Martin. Malcolm basically said, by any means necessary, I'm going to wrest my freedom from you, uh, you know, pride from my cold, dead hand kind of uh, militancy. Okay, now I get it. I understand the impulse, but I think as a strategy for being effective and for raising our, our, our game and for raising our people, Martin's uh, uh, approach to America was more effective. As Shelby Steele said in this uh, documentary film that he's just released, What Killed Michael Brown, he said Mal uh, Martin appealed to um, the honor of America. He said, magnificent promissory note. He said, I thought you said that this was what the country was, but you're not acting like it. Come on, we can do better. That was Martin. The current uh, angry uh, um, uh, leaders and movement uh, activists who fan fancy themselves the heirs of Malcolm um, are demanding uh, something from what they take to be a guilty white America. They this is Shelby Steele's formulation, but I agree with it. They're manipulating white guilt. Are you gonna call white people to a higher ground because you say the country is great? Or are you gonna uh, basically extort uh, a uh, response from white people by saying, in effect, I'll burn this MF down if you don't give me what I want, because by the way, America ain't S-H-I-T. I, I prefer America, I mean, because it is a great nation. I know what that's gonna sound like. People will be pulling their hair out. I mean, just think about it, man. Um, we defeated the Japanese in the Pacific. We defeated the Germans in the uh, Atlantic. Uh, we stood off the Soviet Union facing potential nuclear annihilation. The free world is not an empty phrase. It actually stands for, stood for, and stands for something. We, is the United States of America perfect? No, obviously it's not perfect. But African-Americans are the richest, freest, most powerful people of African descent on the planet. I'm, I know I'm talking to two alumni of the Harvard Business School, so you know what I'm talking about. I mean, the GDP of Nigeria is less than $1 trillion, and there are 200 million people over there. The GDP of the United States is $20 trillion. So let's say we got 10% of that. I know it's probably less than 10%. Maybe it's 8%. That would be, uh, be $1.6 trillion. And there are only 35 or 40 million African Americans. We are five or eight times richer than the average Nigerian. We're the richest Black people on the planet. We can do anything. 
We can elect presidents of the United States who command the most powerful military forces in the history of the world. We completely um, dominate the cultural scene on certain dimensions in American uh, art and music, popular culture and whatnot. Um, the, the fact that our freedom movements have been defining, and this is a point that Nicole Hannah-Jones makes in her 169 project, and I'll give her this, the struggle of African-Americans for freedom has been a defining vector in the whole dynamic of the evolution of American democracy. There's no getting around that. This is a great country. We are a great people in a great country. There's so much that we can do. So, I mean, I'm gonna go with Martin, bet on America. I'm gonna bet against America, I'll bet on America. Very good, we got two more. Um... Civil rights or economic development? You know, the obvious response is, why do I have to choose between civil rights or economic development? But if you're asking me how I want to spend my time asking white people to get their knee off my neck or starting a business, you're asking me how I want to spend my time burning down the bodega at the corner where I'm buying all of my uh, 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 sundries or starting a bodega at the corner. If you're asking me how I want to spend my time, making films about Korean green grocers who are getting up at three o'clock in the morning and going to the dock to get the lettuces that we need in order to eat healthy. Or if I didn't want to give the Korean my money, getting up at three o'clock and going to the dock the and morning. getting the lettuce. Two in the morning. I, I, you know, oh, it's two, it's two. I'm sorry, I didn't no, know no, how no. early you those guys had to three, We get up at two. Okay, then we get up at two. I'll get up at two. So uh, economic development or civil rights, if it's a question of empowerment, I mean, now, now, if you had said question in 1950, it might have been a different answer. Right. But we got the Civil Rights Act of 1960, the Voting Rights Act of 1960, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We got basic e equity of civil standing in the society. I mean, there are problems here and there. Uh, what we don't have is control over our own fate by being able to start, nurture, develop, build a successful business enterprises, which is how, by the way, everybody else how did the Jews become so, so prosperous and uh, powerful in the society with all respect? By creating wealth. These people who talk about the wealth gap, yes, there's a wealth gap. They think the answer is reparations. I mean, the answer is starting businesses. Then you actually have something. Yeah, Absolutely. So. Last one is a little bit more fun. Again, it follows on some of your commentary on your podcast. Kanye or Jay-Z? <laughs> I think I might want to be Jay-Z. He's worth a little bit more than Kanye. <laughs> uh, I mean, and you know, Kanye's a bomb thrower. I, I'm not, I'm not deeply, I'm just, you know, my generation, I was born in 1948. I'm not deeply, deeply into the hip hop world. I don't know all of the different angles and stuff like that. Uh, I, 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 do appreciate from Kanye the fact that he's willing to push the uh, what they call it, the Overton window. He's willing to raise some things like he raises this abortion question. And you don't have to be a zealot to see that there's an issue. I mean, this is what I said on my podcast recently. I right. said, come on, man, you look at the numbers. Some years, almost as many black women had abortions as white women had abortions. And there's like five times as many white women as black women in the country. Now, that can't be healthy for our community. I mean, whatever you think about the kind of philosophy and morality of abortion, the, surely that's an indicator of, a, of something that's not entirely right in our family life and in our, our male-female relations and whatnot like that. I don't know, you know, I, I don't want to presuppose something here, but Kanye is willing to, to raise questions like that. 
Uh, Jay-Z strikes me as a little bit more of an organization man. He's in there with Oprah, you know, and he's trying to, you know, whatever. And Kanye is willing to throw bombs. But, you know, the Kanye's a little bit, a uh, uh, little bit uh, un unstable. I mean, he's a little bit all over the place. I mean, I, you know, so <laughs> I appreciate him. Uh, but I think I might go with Jay-Z. All right. Wow. Well, Glenn, this has just been incredible. So, you know, we want to ask you one last question. And just to give the context for our listeners, you know, 30 years ago, Nike and I, when we were at Harvard Business School, in the midst of the Rodney King verdict and all the riots, we were feeling invisible as, as Black men at Harvard Business School. And we thought we wanted to tell our story, especially for young Black men. And we created this film, we created this project called The Invisible Man. We created a character called Daryl, the 16-year-old uh, imaginary kid who lives in forgotten USA. And we got different Black men at the Harvard Graduate Schools to provide advice to Daryl that despite all these challenges, we wanted to show you, we wanted to demystify excellence and we wanted these men to share their advice. So I'd love to, as we end this podcast, if you were sitting with a contemporary Daryl who's sitting in some urban city right now, hearing that he's gonna be shot, hearing that he's gonna face systemic racism, hearing that white people have to renounce their privilege first before he's gotta move ahead, like, what do you, what's your message to Daryl? Well, I guess I'd say a couple of things. Um, I'd say success sequence. <laughs> I'd say you're going to have to work hard, bro. Nobody's going to give you anything. You need to finish your high school. You need to get a job. Um, and you should try not that my example is uh, the best in this regard, to um, not get the girl pregnant until you're ready to be a father. And you shouldn't do that outside the context of marriage. That's what I would say. Um, so I'd say something like that, you know, about you know, keep your nose to the grindstone and whatnot, which he's going to get from anybody over a certain age. And it may go in one ear, ear and out the other. Another thing I'd say, though, is... Um, Life is tough and it's, it, you never know what kind of blows are coming and where they're coming from. You need a spiritual foundation in your life. I'm not telling you to be a Christian or a Buddhist or anything like that. But I'm telling you, though, is that, I mean, this is what they told me when I had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had a, 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 a substance issue uh, earlier in my life and I had to deal with it. You know, um, you, it was they call it higher power. Anybody familiar with AA knows what I'm talking about. And it's like, this is more than I can handle. Let me just, you know, let go and let God. Let me let go and let God. So it's not all that, um, you know, popular to start talking about God and people that think that you're proselytizing and they want to rule that out. And I'm and I don't have a doctrinaire ideological. You know, you got to be a Catholic. You got to be a Baptist. You gotta, I'm not I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying, man, the power of prayer, not that it's miraculous. And, you know, there's a guy up there who pulls the string. It quiets down your spirit. It gives you a chance to escape from the pressures of the weather. Let's quiet, quiet, peace. You know, you are not in control of everything. You're in control of what you're in control of. But there's a whole lot of stuff. Acceptance, you know. And what about duty? You know, I mean. Things like this, live an honorable life, uh, you know, things of this kind. I, I try to somehow make that vivid. 
Preaching is not going to get it done. I'd have to say it in a register that he could understand. I'd have to convey it to him through characters and personalities that he thought were real. But I think that it's a universal point. I think you see it in every human culture uh, that, um, you know, man does not live by bread alone. That's how they put it in the uh, Christian scripture. Man does not live by bread alone. What does that mean? That means that there is more than this. There's more than what you feel. There's more than filling your belly or releasing your sperm. There's more to life than what you can see and what you can touch. Reverence, you know, something like that. I try to get that across, this spiritual point, uh, because I think it's really, Daryl is going to have to weather some storms unless he's really, really lucky. He's going to need some spiritual resources in order to be able to do it. In order to be able to man up, do his duty when it's hard to do, He's going to have to have a reason why more than just what he feels like, what feels good to him. It's not about what you feel, this kind of thing. Dr. Glenn Lowry, that was incredible. Thank you for sharing with us even just a tidbit of your story and exemplifying excellence for so many years and so many of our listeners and you know, just thank you, really. It is, uh, you are extraordinary. And thank you for your voice right now in our country. I feel like we're on a precipice and your voice is helping to keep us as a country, not just black people, our entire nation, to keep us on track to become a more perfect union. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, thank you, Ian. Lowry. Wonderful. So thank appreciate you. and respect you. Oh, I appreciate thank you, hearing listeners. that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening for another episode of The Invisible Men, and thank you, Dr. Lowry. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 